Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today's Monday, March 8th, 2021. I'm joined today by Sarah Costand to talk about induction of labor, everything you need to know. Currently, about 25% of pregnant women in the U.S. undergo induction of labor, and that number's on the rise. Sarah and I talk about why we might recommend an induction and what our thought process is in coming to that recommendation. Also, for anyone who is scheduled for an induction, we go through the process step-by-step to give you a sense of what to expect. I have found that the process can be a lot less anxiety-provoking when women have this knowledge up front. On Thursday, our high-risk birth story is a really powerful one. I'm going to be joined by Julie Mafuda, who's going to tell the story of her delivery in the height of the pandemic. Next week on Healthful Woman, I'm going to be joined by influencer Fortune Duche to talk about influencers and wellness. Reminder, we're going to have a Healthful Woman podcast every Monday and a high-risk birth story every Thursday. So be sure to subscribe to both. And if you're on Apple, we would really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating for both podcasts. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Sarah, welcome back to the Healthful Woman podcast. So nice to see you. Yep, good to see you too. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so we're going to be talking about induction of labor, which is really common, and we're going to cover what it is, why we do it, how it's done, uh, but also be kind of practical for our patients, what to expect with an induction of labor, because I know a lot of people heading into it have a lot of questions, and it's uncharted territory for them. And a lot of them are actually tuning into this podcast just to hear what it's like. Absolutely. Like I, we were talking last time I did a podcast, we need to do something like, you know, pregnancy and labor related. I covered pre-pregnancy, <laughs> post-pregnancy recovery, and now we're actually getting into the, the, the delivery. We're working our way towards the middle of pregnancy. Right, exactly. So for induction of labor, essentially it, it happens a lot in pregnancy. It's, it's pretty common. You know, every practice is a little bit different, but you know, in the U.S., I think like 25 or 30 percent of women who are pregnant ultimately get induced at the end of pregnancy. And I'm not sure if people are aware of that. Is it, it do you find that people are surprised that they're getting induced? Actually, I find more patients almost expect. And again, this does vary city to city, practice right. to practice. But I feel in our practice, many patients um, feel like most likely they're going to and they'll tell me I'm probably going to end up getting induce. And I'll kind of like ask them why. And I think a lot of it is, you know, it, it, for a variety of reasons that we'll kind of touch on, right. um, it has become more common. And when patients talk to, let's say friends or family members, I think they just hear about it. Right. It's almost the expectation for, and in, in particular in our practice, we, we do have a more higher risk patient population that has more medical issues. So, um, I think for that reason, a lot of the, the, our patients, you know, kind of feel that at some point, like when I talk about timing of delivery, um, some patients will even be surprised when I talk about, you know, usually if everything's going well, you know, we, you know, maybe like a, a week after your due date, if you haven't gone into labor, we'll, we'll have you scheduled or, you know, we'll talk about an induction and they'll be like, wow, I'm going to go that far. In the yeah. pregnancy. <laughs> some of them are not only shocked and surprised and some are quite dismayed right. by that. <laughs> it's like, I didn't want to be induced early, but I didn't want to go that far. Yeah. And it's, I think part of it is because of the, the reason someone would get induced. And I think a lot of time people's perception is, oh, the reason I'm getting induced is because, well, you know, enough is enough. And the doctor's like, you know, we're through with you and you've been pregnant long enough, or it's more convenient for me or more convenient for you. And actually that's not why we do it. It's almost never why we do it actually uh, in our practice. and. It's really, we're trying to balance the the risk of staying pregnant versus the risk of an induction. And that's a complicated, I guess, calculus. And so in our practice, since we tend to have more higher risk patients, there can be risks with an ongoing pregnancy, either to the mother or to the baby. And that's why we're more likely maybe than others to recommend an induction. But again, it's not just because like we're usually, you know, giving a reason for why we're doing it. Yeah. And that's one thing I, I also stress to patients is that, you know, we're, we're a larger practice and we have a 24 seven call schedule. So 
we we really base the decision on what's best for the patient and and her baby. I don't tell people, oh, you need to, or I'd recommend you be induced on Wednesday night because I'm there the next day. And right, um, you know, I never I never do that. You know, some patients will say if they if they need to be induced, they'll want to maybe be delivered on a particular day if there's someone that they want to deliver with. But we really focus it completely on you know, what's best for the patient. And usually when I talk to patients also about induction, even if it's for a medical reason, we, we give a range of, of time. Like it won't just be, okay, you know, this particular day, we'll say, you know, any time from, let's say like, you know, 39 weeks to 39 weeks and six days. Um, so it does give at least some range of time for the patient to figure out what's what's best for her. But but yeah, we don't, I, I don't push patients into induction just because of any convenience on our part, definitely. Right. That's a good point that you know, in practices like ours, and many are, are structured that way nowadays, since there's always someone who's assigned to cover labor and delivery, and that person gets relieved by someone at a certain time, it's not like, you know, people think, oh, I have theater tickets, and therefore I'm inducing you, or I'm going out of town, and therefore I'm inducing you. It really doesn't work like that. It's, it's you know, we're there every day. One of us is there every day, so it doesn't really matter for our schedule. Uh, it's much more so for the patient. And you know, when we're trying to think of risks, I mean, there, there's a couple of, of big ones to staying pregnant. And the biggest one, which is, you know, the hardest to talk about only because it's so scary is the risk of stillbirth, right? With every pregnancy, as it progresses, there is a small risk of stillbirth of the baby passing away inside. Now, again, it is small, but as you get more pregnant, particularly when you start passing your due date, that risk starts to go up a little bit. And if there are other risk factors on the table, you know, twins, high blood pressure, diabetes, other medical problems, the baby's not growing so well, the fluid is low, whatever it might be, that percentage starts creeping up to a number that it gets uncomfortable. Right. And you're like, you know, we can wait and, you know, most likely everything's going to be okay, but we really try not to use most likely when talking right. about the health of the baby. And so based on the risk factors and based on the circumstances, our breakpoint for when we're more comfortable delivering than waiting, changes. And sometimes it's a week after the due date, like in the lowest risk of pregnancies. And sometimes it's at the due date. Sometimes it's a week before the due date. Sometimes it's two weeks before the due date. And so different people are going to get different recommendations for induction based on their specific circumstances uh, in their pregnancy, both their risk factors and how things are going uh, along for the baby. I would say what you mentioned, um, the, the risk of stillbirth, as uncomfortable it is to talk about, is, is what drives some of this, uh, most of the, of the decision-making regarding induction of labor. And the one instance that would also, as from a maternal standpoint, right. from the mom getting sick is women with high blood pressure or women who develop preeclampsia, there's right. a risk to the baby, but there's also actually a risk to the mom to staying pregnant longer because preeclampsia is something that's it can be very dangerous for the mom. So in a in a woman, let's say, who has well-managed chronic hypertension, comes into the pregnancy with it, but her blood pressure stays normal throughout the pregnancy. Maybe she's on a you know medication during the pregnancy and everything's going well. There there is a point where we will say, you know, we even if things are going well, we don't recommend going past this point in the pregnancy not just because of risk to your baby of, of, of stillbirth, but also risk to you, because if you get preeclampsia, that could make you very sick and that could be potentially life-threatening for you. So there are some issues that we will recommend induction for that are really just related to the, the risk to the baby. But that's one instance where it's also related to the mom's health as well. Right. And I think it's important for, for women who are getting a recommendation for an induction labor and they don't really understand why or maybe they're not comfortable with it or even opposed to it, it's important to speak to your doctor and say, why are you recommending this? I mean, what is it that you're concerned about that is making you recommend an induction and to sort of, you know, quote unquote, end the pregnancy at a certain point in time? And, you know, you may end up hearing something, well, I'm concerned about stillbirth, which can certainly be freaky to hear. Um, but you may hear something like, well, you know, it's for your health or whatever. And, and I think it's important to get that understanding because when when people you know, talk about induction, you know, they, they often even don't understand what's going on and why it is, but typically there is a good reason for why it's being recommended. Uh, and the only reason you may not want to talk about it is if you just don't want to talk about the idea of stillbirth, because it's just too painful to think about, which is understandable, which is also why we try not to just drop that on the table towards the end of pregnancy, because 
there has to be some you know art in bringing that conversation up without you know without scaring people too much. But if you don't know why it's happening, just ask, and your doctor will be able to tell you. I'll look up and bring up statistics specifically just so patients can understand when I say there is an increased risk of something. Some patients will ask, okay, well, like, like, what's the degree of increased risk? And I'm happy to actually, you know, show the numbers. And for some patients, they're like, okay, you know, that that actually makes sense to me now, as opposed to just saying that, you know, it's it's just an increased risk. You know, some patients, I'll bring it up and they'll say, okay, fine. Like, that's totally, right. especially, you know, some and they're patients, happy to be done. They're like, thank God, great, <laughs> 39 weeks, 38 right. weeks, you know, if, if there's a medical issue. But there are some patients that really, you know, they understand that they may be higher risk and we're recommending delivery at a particular time. But, and we'll again, go into this a little bit more, like they really wanted to just to go into labor on their own. And so for them, I think it's a little harder to, you know, go along with the idea of an induction. And, and it, it does take explaining, even if the patient knows that she has a medical issue and suspected that this would be the case. When you and I were training, there was this rule in obstetrics that if you induce someone's labor, you're increasing the risk of a cesarean. And because of that, we were very hesitant to induce people unless it was absolutely necessary because we don't want to increase the risk of a cesarean. And that is definitely the thought amongst women, amongst you know the lay press, amongst pop culture, amongst online, whatever it is. But what's interesting is in the past few years, a massive study was published showing that that's not the case. And if you look at women at 39 weeks and you induce them versus not induce them, the C-section rate is exactly the same. And we've discussed this in other podcasts and why that is. And Essentially, it's because the older studies were not well designed. They compared people being induced to people who were already in labor, yeah. which is unfair, right? Because if I'm deciding whether to induce someone, the alternative to inducing her is not she shall be in labor. It is we're just going to wait. Right. And when you wait, she may go into labor. She may end up getting induced a week later. Something might happen. And so when you do this study properly, there was no difference. And it's been shown in other populations and women with hypertension and women with ruptured membranes and multiple, multiple populations of women it does not make a difference in terms of C-section rate, again, provided that you are patient and right. let things happen. So it's removed some of the concern for induction of labor, uh, certainly amongst the doctors. And I think it's trickling down uh, to the women as well when we explain to them that, no, we're not increasing your risk of a cesarean, because that's typically one of the biggest hesitations there is. That's probably the number one hesitation that women bring up to me whenever I bring up the idea of an induction is, I, well, I don't want to end up with a, with a C-section. And I, I bring up that trial, which is known as the ARRIVE <laughs> trial, interesting yeah. enough. All, all big studies have to have a, a, a fancy acronym. Yeah. That's the and, rule. And it always has to kind of match the goal, like what the right. trial is talking about. It's like arrive. Yeah, I will. I'll bring that up and I'll go over with them that the reason why I think that that's the case is that when you induce someone and you give it, give the induction the time that it deserves and you're familiar with how much time each stage of labor is supposed to take, then the induction itself should not increase the risk of a C-section. I think that they're, they're probably, and, and a lot of this is what patients have heard from friends and family is, you know, in the past, I think sometimes if an induction was taking a longer period of time, sometimes some, some physicians might have said, well, this, it's not going anywhere and kind of ended things a little sooner. And I, and I think, you know, I'll, I'll hear from, from patients who will say, you know, my, my, my friend delivered or uh, when my mother delivered us and they'll, they'll bring that up that they hear these stories about how, you know, at a certain point in the day, it's like, okay, we're, right. you know, we're not continuing. And, and so I, I reassure patients. And again, I think that in our practice, because we, you know, we have a, again, we have a call schedule. We, we have our, you know, we're on call to a certain point. Someone new will take over that also knows the patient, but there's the dead, there's the deadline. If we even set a deadline only has to do with the mom and the baby's well being, And it's a point where we say, look, if we haven't progressed past this point, we're, we're not going to get anywhere and there's actually risk right. to continuing right. as opposed to, you know, it's, it's a certain time of the day. We expect things to have been done by now. And if it's not like, that's it. And it, it's, we actually give more time than, than patients, you know, ex expect to inductions. Yeah. And it's really important because again, in this study, they were patient. And so it really is only applicable if you are also patient uh, as doctors and because meaning, yes, if I induce people and say, all right, it's been eight hours, nothing's happened, let's do a C-section. Sure, you're going to you know, do C-section on 50% of people yeah. getting induced. But if you're patient, it really doesn't happen. And if 
ultimately an induction leads to a cesarean, that's likely what would have happened anyways, you know, five days later when she went into labor or a week later when we had to do so right. for another reason or whatever it is. And I, I think that that's important. But it does bring up one of the downsides of induction is that it takes a long time. Yes. And that's really important to for people to understand that, you know, when you come in labor on your own, you're basically, you've hit the ground running, mm-hmm. right? Most people, when they show up in labor, they're contracting regularly and painfully. Their cervix is three or four centimeters open or more. Their water may be broken already. You know, they are, they're booming. Mm-hmm. And that, to get to that point could be six hours at home, 12 hours at home, three days at home. It could be anything. And when we're inducing, we're taking that pre-period, that six, 12 you know, hours, three-day period, and condensing it into overnight. Yeah. And so it it takes more time to get to the starting line, so to speak. And that's why inductions frequently will take 12, 18, 24, 36 hours, whatever it is. Uh, and that's important for people to know on the front end. That's the one thing I will always acknowledge to patients about induction is, and I, I will admit to patients when, because they'll bring that up too. And I, I'll, I will tell them that is true. You know, just to get you to the point where you're starting early labor right. will take several hours. Um, and, and sometimes during inductions, I'll actually offer it as a point of reassurance, though, that some patients will say to me, you know, I'm three or four centimeters. I was hoping I would be more dilated. And I'll say, actually, I, I wouldn't have expected things to have progressed past this right. point. Like, you're kind of exactly where, where you know, you should be. So that is one disadvantage. Again, for a medically indicated induction, the benefit is still going to outweigh that for, for many people. But it's, you know, it's something I bring up if, if someone does want to be induced a little like earlier, and we'll talk more about that. Right. That's the one disadvantage I'll say is that you you will just have a longer time in the hospital, and the the process of just getting you into labor may take longer. Yeah, and I think what you're getting at is this idea of this elective induction of people just choose to be induced, and there's actually new debate about whether we should even be calling it elective induction because again, the, if you're after 39 weeks there really isn't any known benefit to the baby to staying inside longer. Under 39 weeks, there seems to be benefit. And the earlier you are, the more benefit there is to the baby to staying in. But after 39 weeks, that sort of peaks. And so the thought process is, well, since induction does not increase the risk of a cesarean and there's some risk of stillbirth, it's not really elective. You're inducing for the same thing we said before, you're taking sort of, you know, a very low risk of stillbirth and saying, well, fine, I'll induce because there's not an increased risk of cesarean. And so for that reason, some people aren't calling any induction after 39 weeks elective anymore, like just by choice, patient choice, doctor choice, whatever. And I think that's true. But ultimately, there is some issue with that because if every single person got induced at 39 weeks, you're essentially doubling the time someone's going to be in a labor room and there may not be enough labor rooms and then you're going to have people showing up and, you know, delivering in a hallway or whatever because there aren't enough spots. And there, there is a logistical concern to that. Uh, but I do agree that it's the idea of getting induced after 39 weeks should not be one of like shame that you're doing something, you know, purely elective and it's a bad idea. It's fine. It just takes longer compared to doing it uh, spontaneously. And so we tend to do it only when there's other risk factors, only because they wouldn't get a spot at the hospital. Like right. There just wouldn't be one available, even if someone wanted to get electively induced at 39 weeks because all the other people waiting to do it would take priority um, over her. Yeah, I agree. I think that my my threshold for offering induction starting at 39 weeks where there's not, as, as you were saying, like a medical indication of the sense of like high blood pressure or diabetes right. or low amniotic fluid. I have a much lower threshold I'm to discuss that and offer it, which is again, right. such a change from residency where you know, it was like, no, like act- actively discourage patients from even right. considering it. I don't, I don't do that now. You know, I have, we both have patients yeah. that will bring up concerns about going past 39 weeks, either logistically that they live very far away. They're worried that their labor will go quickly, that, you know, they're extremely just uncomfortable during the pregnancy, all things that as a resident, we would still like, we were still kind of taught, well, encourage patients to, you know, not get induced unless again, there's one of these medical criteria. And now I feel very comfortable bringing up, you know, we could arrange for you to be induced once you cross 39 weeks, as long as everything stays okay. If you have concerns about getting to the hospital on time, if you, you know, if someone's worried that their labor is going to go quickly, um, if they have had a lot of, you know, just chronic pain issues, you know, flaring up in the pregnancy, sometimes even for those, we may 
you need to induce patients earlier. And some patients are surprised, actually, that that's even an, an option. So I think it can be a good option for many patients, especially and if someone has had a baby before, the, the induction would probably right. go more quickly. But even someone who's never delivered before is 39 weeks and is, you know, wants to discuss induction, I'm, you know, like, I think we're, we're fine with it. And as long as we can find a spot at the hospital, and as long as the patient just understands that the time it may take to have a successful vaginal delivery, we'll, you know, we'll be there and we'll, we'll do it. Right. And we function under the, under the constraints of our hospital, like everybody does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like you said, if we're there every day. Right. So for us, it's, it's not inconvenient or convenient for someone to get induced. It yeah. just, it is like, it's yeah. fine. Uh, but at the hospital, you know, there's a lot of people being delivered. And if, you know, there's five people getting induced that night, all of whom have a, a stronger reason than, you know, our patient, she's going to have to wait, right. essentially. And I, I explain that to people also that we're okay with it, but just, you know, we have to operate, you know, under the constraints of our uh, hospital and volume. And that's true everywhere. It's not unique to where we deliver. And under 39 weeks, it's a little bit, there is a higher bar because again, like we said before, there is some upside to the baby to waiting to 39 weeks. So if there's no reason whatsoever, we're not going to typically induce before 39 weeks, but there are many medical reasons for the mother or baby that we do deliver under 39 weeks. And again, it's just a matter of, it's the same idea that we're balancing, but the bar is going to be set differently when you're under 39 weeks because you are potentially increasing risk to the newborn by being either premature or mature, like term, but less term. And so you really have to have a good reason uh, to induce beforehand. And that's been a big push in the past several years uh, for good reasons, to not induce people for for sort of mediocre reasons prior to 39 weeks. Yeah, many patients are surprised because they'll, they'll know that, you know, 37 weeks is what we consider term. Right. But even at 37 weeks, some babies that are delivered, even if it's just spontaneous, you know, labor, like mom goes into labor, delivers, you know, some occasionally will have some breathing issues or, you know, some issues with jaundice or feeding. Very mild. And those babies usually like do very well. We don't expect any long-term issues. But after 39 weeks, the risk of that pretty much is, is eliminated. So between 37 and 39 weeks, if someone otherwise is doing fine, there's no reason to induce. Well, we, you know, we won't. Um, obviously, if there's any issue that could pose a risk to the mom or baby, we'll, you know, we'll go ahead. But that's why if things are otherwise going well, 39 weeks is really you know, what we try to get to, especially if there's if there's really no medical issue. Right. So we spent a, a fair amount of time talking about sort of the concept of why someone would get induced or get recommended to be induced and sort of our thought process of why we would recommend it versus our hesitation and how we decide who needs it and when to do it. And that's all very important. And I want to shift now to sort of the second aspect is just how do we do it? Like, what is it that we do to induce labor? And then the third part is sort of what to expect, yep. you know, from the patient's perspective. So in terms of how we do it, the way I try to explain to people is, you know, when someone is going into labor on their own, there's a slow process where the cervix over time softens, shortens, opens a little bit. And at the same time, the woman's going to have contractions that are getting closer together and getting stronger. And they don't always happen at the same time. Sometimes she's contracting before the cervix opens. Sometimes her cervix opens before she contracts. Sometimes they happen simultaneously, but it takes a while. And the point of the induction is basically to take someone who none of that is happening and to get her to cervix open, contracting, you know, artificially. Yeah. And there's different ways that we can do that, but all of them require something. Right, we have to either give a medication or do something physically uh, to the cervix. So, what are the options that we have to induce labor? The first options are kind of in the category of what we call mm. cervical ripening agents, right. and we use these for our patients who come in who have a cervix that is is closed and and fairly thick, which is. I would say most of our patients, especially if they've never had a delivery before, probably the option that we use the most, which I actually like the best for a number of reasons, is um, a cervical balloon. And what we what we basically use is um, a thin, it's like a thin rubber plastic catheter that you place in the cervix while the, like I'll do it or one of the residents will do it while they're doing an exam. And it's placed into the cervical canal. And then there's a balloon at the tip that's inflated with usually water or saline. 
And mechanically, as it's being inflated, as you can imagine, this, you know, the cervix is, is a fairly pliable, softer structure. So when the balloon is inflated, it will push open the cervix. And we leave that balloon in as long as it needs to stay in to just mechanically open the cervix. Now, we're not trying to have someone go from closed to six centimeters with right. this balloon. The, the balloon fills only to a certain point. Right. And I would say by the time it, it slips out, by the time it's dilated the cervix enough, the cervix might be two or maybe three centimeters dilated. The other thing that the balloon does is it will trigger the release of certain chemicals in the cervix that may also help further soften the cervix. So our goal after placement of the balloon is that by the time it falls out, which can be anywhere from, I've had it fall out 20 minutes later, I've had it take six or seven hours. Most people, I would say it's probably in for like two to four hours before it falls out. The goal is that we now have a cervix that's maybe two or three centimeters dilated and a little bit softer and ready for the next step in the induction process. Right. I mean, essentially, it's the, the balloon at the tip of this catheter uh, is about the size of a golf ball, give or take. And it's actually the same catheter that we've used for a long, long time for, for urinary bladders it's called a Foley catheter. Uh, and the concept is when you when you slip it in, it's nice and skinny, and then you can inflate this balloon from the outside, but the balloon inflates on the tip all the way at the other end. And so you put in this thin catheter, inflate that balloon, and then when you put it on tension to like pull it out, it slowly gets pulled out of the cervix. It's like pulling a golf ball out of a cervix, basically. And so by the time it comes out, like you said, the cervix is open to some degree and usually softer, and frequently she's started contracting a bit as well, but it takes time. Uh, and you were going to probably go into some of the other ways you can get the cervix to soften and open uh, for induction as well. Yeah, another effective way, which I've also used in the past, is there's a medication called misoprostol. It's also known as um, Cytotec. It's actually a medication that used to be used or still used for stomach ulcers in obviously in non-pregnant patients because right. it was also found that it, it helps soften and, and dilate the cervix as well. When we use it, it can either be taken by mouth or it can be placed actually in the vagina. And it's just it's just a pill or rather even a piece of a pill because the pill will be cut up into small pieces. And every four hours it can be placed in the vagina and then it gets absorbed and it will help the cervix again soften and dilate. I tend to find it most helpful if a woman's cervix is so closed that we I couldn't even place a balloon in her cervix. The reason I try to use the balloon, and again, this really varies from place to place, and there's no right or wrong answer to this, but I tell patients I, I like using the balloon because there's a little bit less of a risk of a patient having almost too many contractions. With the misoprostol, it can be very effective, but some women are very sensitive to it. And once it's placed, they'll go from not contracting to sometimes contracting every minute. I've even had to give medication to reverse the contractions. So I'll, a lot of patients will actually ask about it because to them, you know, because it's a more of a pill, they actually request it. And I'll explain to them the, you know, my, the reason why I prefer the balloon. And if a patient really, you know, didn't feel comfortable having the balloon, you know, we could talk about it. But I, I think a lot of patients see it as, it seems like a more gentler option, but, and, and again, it can be very effective and very helpful in many cases. What I always tell patients is that, the, the one downside to the misoprostol is that it can sometimes cause you know, what we call hyperstimulation of the uterus or, or you know too many contractions. Yeah, I agree. And when I was training, we did the misoprostol for everybody. Mm -hmm. We did you too. Know, every yeah. three hours, you know, as the intern, you're just going around the floor, putting them in, you know, midnight, 3 a.m., 6 a.m., and you're doing that. And it's fine. It works. I, I find that the balloon, I prefer the balloon also. And I find that number one, I think it's more predictable. Right. The mesoprostol, sometimes you put it in and three hours later, they're off to the races. And other times it's you keep putting them and putting them and you're not really sure what's going on. And I find that the balloon, even though there is a range, like you said, it's more predictable for most people. It's going to be out four five, six hours. And then at that point, since their cervix is open, you can like do phase two, which is break their water, which is really the next part of the induction process. And I also agree it gives you some more control. You don't have that stimulation of the uterus to the same degree. You don't have that same risk of the contractions happening. If there's an issue, you can just deflate it and remove it. Whereas once the mesoprostol's in, it's in, nothing you can do about it. Uh, and so in our practice, we use the balloon probably 95% of the time. Like you said, there's the occasional patient who 
we just can't get the balloon his cervix is too tight or it's too uncomfortable and she doesn't have an epidural or doesn't want one or whatever. But most of the time it's a balloon and it's well tolerated. It's quite effective because once it's out, we can give Pitocin. So she's contracting. That's an intravenous medication to start contractions. We can break the water. And then since the Pitocin is intravenous, we can titrate the dose to give her more to give her more contractions, or we can back off to give her fewer contractions. Whereas the mesoprostol, it's all or none. You put it in and then it's right. there. And so I, I find it's 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 a little bit more uh, user-friendly and I prefer it as well. And so that's what we do. No, I agree. And as far as the the comfort, the, the one disadvantage, which you mentioned is yeah. just to put the balloon in, You know, I, I have to do an exam, check how dilated the cervix is, and then place the balloon in. And many women, if, if let's say someone doesn't have an epidural, They'll, they'll feel maybe a little discomfort from the exam and they may have some cramping, you know, right after the balloon is placed because it can sometimes stimulate some cramping. Again, many women tolerate it, tolerate it very well. We, a whole other topic is just, you know, epidural, when to get an epidural. And some patients will ask me about that. And we, we do offer patients the chance to get an epidural even before the balloon is placed if they just want to be comfortable and and sleep through the rest of the night, especially if they were planning on getting an epidural at some point anyway. But I don't tell patients that they they have to. And some women, even if they think they'll likely get an epidural later, they still like to defer it and wait just because that way, at least, you know, they can still, you know, get out of bed, even with the balloon in, it's taped to their legs. So they could get out of bed if they wanted to stand or stretch or walk around a little bit. So I, I leave that up to the patient. I'll tell them, look, this is probably what it's going to feel like. Most people tolerate it fine. You have the option of getting the epidural, but you don't, you don't have to. Right. I think there's two important things you said there. The first is that from our standpoint and from a medical standpoint and from a labor standpoint, it doesn't matter. Meaning if she's gets an epidural before we do anything to her, if she gets an epidural sometime in the middle of this, sometime later in labor or not at all, it's not going to change when she delivers or how she delivers, right? The epidural does not have an effect, A, if she gets it or doesn't get it, or B, when she gets it. And so that's very, very important. I mean, the decision that she's making about the epidural is only what she prefers. And so in New York City, 90% of women plus get epidurals. Some don't, and that's great. And they don't have to if they're getting uh, an induction, but it might be more difficult because again, it's a longer time and you're not you know, at home doing something over many, many days, you're sort of compressing that into six hours. And so for many women, it might be more uncomfortable than spontaneous labor only because again, we're sort of like hitting the gas quickly, but it's up to her. And I tell women the same thing. If she wants an epidural before we start, great. We can put in the epidural, then put in the balloon. Since we usually start at night, she can sleep potentially because she won't feel any pain. And then it's there for her labor and that's fine. The epidural will last as long as we want it to because it's a continuous infusion. There's no like endpoint on epidural. If she doesn't want an epidural at all, fine, great, no problem. And if she says, I want one, but I want to wait till the morning, also fine. It's all good on our end. And so, and it's not a decision she has to make before she comes in. She can decide on the spot or whatever. Most people know if they're going to get it beforehand because they're going to, you know, decide before that we start, they're going to get it. But ultimately it's, it's not a, it's not a decision that, quote unquote, matters in terms of her labor. It's really what experience she's looking for. Less pain, you know, then she'll get it earlier versus she wants, you know, to feel the contractions and have more mobility, then she'll wait or not get it at all, which is fine. In terms of the the cervical ripening, so that happens. And then as I, we were talking about before, after that happens, we really have to continue typically some medication so that she's contracting. Not always, sometimes either the mesoprostol or the balloon will put someone into labor and then she's contracting on her own and we don't have to do anything. But I would say that's the exception. Most people will end up getting Pitocin, which is the uh, sort of commercial name for oxytocin, which is the basically stimulates the uterus to contract. It's the same thing that her brain makes naturally when she's in labor, but we give it intravenously. We give it on a pump. It's titrated. The dosing is very precise. You know, we go up by a certain amount, you know, so that it's safe. And we're just giving her the dose that gives her a normal contraction pattern, which is about every three minutes or so. could be every two, every four, but around every three minutes. And the other thing that I always, always go over with women before an induction, particularly if they're doing the balloon, it's not just the balloon. It's the balloon plus breaking the water. Yes. Meaning people are like, oh, can you wait to break my water? I'm like, well, we can wait, but it's like literally putting the brakes on the induction. It's like a pause. And if you want to wait six hours in the middle, you know, and do nothing, okay. 
but nothing's going to happen really unless you break the water because it's it's the next step in inducing labor with that balloon. And that's a really important point because some people hear otherwise and they they think that once we break the water that there's some clock that gets started and they have to deliver in a certain amount of time. And that's not true. It's just part of the process of inducing the labor. It's a big, big topic when I discuss inductions. And I've also had some patients, some patients will will request you know, not to break the water to continue the Pitocin longer. And then I'll actually have some patients that will say, can you break my water, but not start Pitocin? <laughs> and I, so I've had both discussions with patients. The patients that ask about just breaking the water many times have had a prior delivery where their water breaks and they'll tell me, you know, I, and then I deliver two hours after my water breaks with right. all of my kids. So they're, that's a little bit of a different story. Right. I'd say for the average patient who's coming in for induction, um, I, I do recommend both and both simultaneously. You know, we always honor our, we won't do anything without our patient's consent. So if a patient, if I discuss breaking the water and a patient says, you know, I don't want you to do it, I understand why you're recommending it, but I don't want you to do it, we will start or continue the Pitocin. But I, I do tell patients that it's it will end up prolonging their time on the you know on the labor floor, especially if it's a first baby. Usually, pitocin alone, even when we're again like you said, you know, slowly increasing it, we're not trying to make the patient over contract. But often, what breaking the water does is it just it helps the baby's head press down more on the cervix, so that when the uterus contracts, the head actually acts to push and help dilate the cervix and when the water's not broken, even if the head is just you know gently resting on the cervix, it's just not putting as much as much pressure, which is one of the reasons why the breaking the water can help. And also breaking the water helps even release more, you know, chemicals that again can further soften the cervix and further help potentiate or just in, increase the effect of the Pitocin. I recommend doing both at the same time. I reassure patients, I explain how I break the water, I'll explain it's not gonna hurt you or the baby. It's basically you know, it sounds kind of funny to say that, but it's similar to popping a, a water balloon. Yeah. That's basically what the amniotic sac is. And the water, the fluid, some of the fluid drains out slowly. The Not all of the fluid comes out at once. There's still fluid around the baby. Usually the baby's head will drop down, almost act as a little bit of a plug. And then as the cervix dilates more, a little more fluid will, will, will keep coming out. I always remind people, the reason we're doing this is to get you from not being in labor to being in labor, right? That's what an induction is, right? That's the goal. You're you're walking in, you're not in labor, and then we want you to be in labor because we're trying to, you know, deliver the baby. And this is part of it. Breaking the water is part of that process. So someone says, I want to be induced, but I don't want you to break my water. I'm like, well, you're not being induced then. Like we're just putting a balloon in your cervix and like we're not doing anything. And so it, it's just an important thing for people to understand that it's like a it's like a package, right? <laughs> to get someone in labor, we want to do it. And then if you draw it out too long, then you may be getting an extra six hours of Pitocin, which can have some, you know, uh, it's not that it's complicated to have more Pitocin, but there is a downside to getting more of it. And there's a downside to a longer labor in terms of risk of bleeding and infection. And so typically you want to do things in the most expeditious way that remains safe, right? You don't want to overdo it, like you said, but, and that's something that, you know, we train to do in you know, we sort of know how to do that. And that's, that's important. And then once that happens, you know, they're contracting, they're dilated, their water's broken. It's not markedly different from someone who comes in labor other than it's a little bit slower. Like you said, their service is usually not so thinned out. It's still thicker. So, and you're talking from that point when their cervix is open three centimeters or four centimeters, they're contracting regularly and we break the water. It's very typical that it's going to take, you know, 12 hours from that point till they deliver. It could be shorter and that'd be great. But, you know, so I tell people they're going to come in at night, let's say at, you know, 9, 10 at night, get an epidural or not, get their balloon placed around midnight and their water broken around six in the morning. It's not remotely unusual to deliver in the evening, 6 p.m., 7 p.m., 8 p.m. And that's fine. That's that's normal timing and sometimes longer. They might get lucky and it's shorter, particularly, like you said, if it's not their first baby. But that's sort of the time frame. Uh, that it's going to take. I tell people expect it to be up to 24 hours and sometimes longer from the time we start till the time the baby comes out. Yes, I, I agree. And that that surprises a lot of patients also to hear that even from the morning when their water's broken, it could still be not till the night that they right. that they deliver. But I'll tell them, but that's okay. Like that's even if things are, are going well. Right. Um, as for what a lot of patients bring up regarding, you know, not wanting to have their water broken or being concerned about that, I'll tell them that... We don't expect, you know, it could really take 12 hours just 
again, to get into active labor after your water is broken. And that means being like around five or six centimeters. And then from that point on, we still, there still could be, you know, a few to several hours before you get to be fully dilated and then you're pushing the baby. And as long as, you know, you remain, you know, you don't have a fever, the baby's heart rate's fine. You know, we can keep going. I think there is a belief that once you cross 12 or 16, I've heard patients tell me different things, but there'll be a certain amount of hours like your water can't be broken for more than this time or you have to have a C-section. But that's not what we use to decide whether someone has to have a C-section. If we broke someone's water as part of their induction process and they're otherwise making, you know, what we consider reasonable progress. I mean, we've even had some patients go overnight of the next night. I would say that's not common. Like most people, if they're going to deliver, will deliver earlier than that. But we've even had patients who started an induction, let's say Monday night, and they delivered Wednesday morning and they had a vaginal delivery yeah. and the baby did well and they did well. Yeah. We just had one uh, last week. Yes. Right. So where, I know, was just thinking yeah. of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she, she came in on, it was a Wednesday night uh, when you were on call Yes, and then someone took over for her all day. Then Liz took over and was there all day Thursday with her Thursday night. And then Friday morning, ultimately Melka delivered her. You're talking, it was 36 hours plus later and healthy baby. Mm-hmm vaginal delivery, everything went fine. It was a little slower than typical, but that's okay. And again, like you said, we don't we don't have like an alarm clock that goes off that says, oh, at X point you have to deliver from when we broke your water. It depends on the entire picture. How is she progressing? How does the baby look? How is she doing? You know, what else is going on uh, in terms of making that determination? And so people should be reassured that it's if, if they delay the water breaking, it's not going to give them more time or give them a you know, a lower chance of a C-section. It's really, uh, it has really nothing to do with that. What do you practically tell women, right? So they're, they're about to get induced or they're coming in that night or the next day. And so we went over, you know, what the process is, you know, they're going to come in epidural or not the balloon, the time, but what else should people know before they show up in the hospital uh, for an induction, like in terms of preparation at home or things to bring or things to expect uh, that you tell women? So I tell patients that are having an induction because of the amount of time it takes to really, you know, to bring things that are going to keep them comfortable. The hospital will provide you know, like basic necessities, like if you forget your toothbrush, forget your toothpaste, like they'll, you know, they'll have all of that. A couple things that I've specifically started telling patients is actually to really try to get as much rest as you possibly can in the, especially in the early part of the induction. So to bring some sort of eye mask just to block out light and earplugs, just because once you're, you know, admitted and settled in and the process has started, there's going to be a lot of of downtime, especially in the early stage of the of the induction. Um, so to to bring that, just because as everyone knows, hospitals are not the best place to catch rest. And even though many nurses will try to keep the room dark and, you know, turn down the volume on certain monitors, it helps to have the earplugs and the eye mask. And I I reassure patients also, you know, you can definitely go to sleep. Like we can see the fetal monitor that you're going to have on everywhere on the floor because some women are are nervous about sometimes falling asleep because they want to keep an eye on things. And I'll I'll tell them, don't worry, you know, we'll see what's going on with your baby. If we need to adjust the monitor, we will just you know, try to get as much rest as, as possible. Yeah. And even in advance, you know, if they're if they're able to take a nap the day before, the, you know, the day they're coming in, you know, before they come in, have a good meal, have a good shower, you know, like it's just, it, it's important to show up, you know, as, as rested and full and just ready to go because they're going to be there a long time potentially. When you said have a, have a good meal, that's another thing yeah. that I bring up is that definitely before coming in, you know, eat something that obviously a- appeals to you. Um, I wouldn't eat something like, you know, super heavy, but right. really there's no, no real restriction, but, you know, just have, have like a good meal because when you come to the hospital, you'll still be able to, you know, have clear liquids to drink when you're at the hospital and, and, you know, eating and, you know, labor is a whole other yeah. discussion. Yeah. Um, I know in g- our general practice with, with some exceptions is that when you're in the hospital being induced that you can definitely drink whatever clear liquids you want and, Clear liquids can encompass, you know, means yeah. any clear juice like apple juice, cranberry juice, vitamin water, even like a clear miso or chicken broth, black, uh, you know, black coffee right. without milk. All of those things are are, right. are clears. As Sam Bender says, clear liquids do not have to be clear, and they do not have to be liquids. 
You know, black coffee is a clear liquid. Jello. And Jello is a clear liquid. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically stuff, yeah, it's basically stuff without dairy. That's a clear liquid. So no no milk in it. The only solid food is something that usually is a liquid, like jello. <laughs> then you gelatinize it. Uh, but like you said, vitamin water is good, Gatorade. If people like, you know, uh seltzer, that's fine. Broth is very good. Black coffee, like you said, for the morning. If people are yes. coffee drinkers, absolutely you know, bring get, it. Yeah, bring some nice black coffee with you because the hospital coffee is also not not very classy. Yeah, I can I can attest to that. Any particular clear liquids that you think you would want that the hospital might not have, just you know, bring them along. And some of the reasoning behind this with induction is, you know, I, I've had patients with a very long induction where, you know, in the past I've I've said, yeah, you know, go ahead and have more of a of a snack. But the idea is that we we tend to refrain from that just and again, it, this definitely varies from from place to place. Different hospitals will have different guidelines, but um, the idea is that. We want to avoid as much of a full stomach as possible in case there was an you know emergency and you know a C-section was necessary. The idea is that if you've been drinking clears, the stomach is is less full and there's potentially less risk of, of aspiration than if you had a you know full stomach if you've been eating the whole time. Again, this is a topic that there is some some debate about. I'll definitely yeah. admit. That's at least the reasoning behind it, and right. policies change, and things you know, ideas about this change all the time. Yeah, so. the current the current hospital policy where we delivers, they don't want women having solid foods. That might change. Other hospitals is different. We don't make that policy. Yeah, we're just you know, we're following the rules. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's something. If if you're not with us, you should ask about that. Say, hey, you know, to wherever you're going to deliver, what's the rule on eating and labor? And they'll tell you what the hospital policy is for you. So yeah, I so bringing chargers yeah. for your for your phone for your you know for your I don't know, your laptop, you know, bring stuff if you're going to get some work or you want to watch movies or you want to, you know, do something or do emails, totally fine. Bring something to read if you prefer. Again, if you're going to be reading, bring your reading glasses. Like these are things that people don't always think about. And it's not just you, but if someone's coming with you, if your partner's coming with, he or she's going to need all the same things, right? And they can eat typically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Snacks for the... Snacks for the partner that you'll kind of yeah. guiltily eat. <laughs> when my wife is in labor, I have my bag. Snacks for dad. You know, so I got my old bag of food that I want. And and also, it's since it's a long time, you know, we're we're in Manhattan. People can order food to be delivered. You know, if it's in the morning, four centimeters, break the water, potatoes and starting. We're like, hey, maybe 10, 12 hours. If her partner wants to go get breakfast and come back. I mean, there's, you know, as long as you're available by cell phone, you know, Different people feel differently about whether they want to be there the whole time with their partner or whether they want to come and go, or maybe they have, you know, childcare to attend to at home. And, you know, that can be individualized. Uh, but typically, since this is a, a longer process, it's not like coming in labor where you may deliver at any minute. We sort of can predict that unless something crazy happens, it's going to be a while. So there's a lot of options uh, for coming and going. COVID throws a wrench into that. Yes, definitely. Uh, so if you're listening to this and there are COVID restrictions, abound something to ask about whether partners a can come b can come and go how that works uh but generally in the world of the normal uh <laughs> partners can come and go and other people can come in and doulas and other family members in and out uh, and so that's just important to to remember in terms of planning your own induction yeah covid it's it's funny because the delivery services have to mount sinai for food have definitely been booming in business because at least at, um, at at our hospital for, and I think this may still be the case for now, partners, um, once they were there, you know, could not leave and, and, and come back during labor. Once, right. once the, the, their partner delivered and they were in the, on the postpartum floor, then they could actually come and go and go home and pick up stuff and they didn't have to stay there for the, right. the full right. time. But, right. and again, that, you know, that could be different in the next, you know, yeah. in a few weeks or a few months and every hospital is, is also different with that. Yeah. And and that's important. And, and <laughs> it's like the house, the, the labor floor is like a secure unit, you know, <laughs> and the postpartum floor is a little more lax. It's just, it's one of these things with what is the level of acuity there and how, what's the space and the processes. And so it's, it is a little complex to figure this out. So definitely ask in advance, what's the most up-to-date uh, policies for that. And it's also important, you know, again, if you're going to have a support person in labor, like a doula, again, to ask um, her or him, uh, you know, what is the plan? Are you going to be there for the whole induction for parts of it? Because again, the doula has to rest also. And these are things that just plan in advance, but all of it is is based on the idea that this is going to be longer than if you just showed up in labor. Right. And a lot of the planning is for that. So there's the regular things you bring to the hospital, but then the extra planning because it's going to be longer potentially. 
the one thought I had just going back to earlier in the conversation, and again, this may mainly has to do more with our practice and being higher risk is that one thing I tell patients who are very nervous, who for a medical reason have to be induced, you know, even like much earlier than they expected is that, you know, especially when they, again, when they bring up what we talked about with C-section rates, I'll say, especially in your case, it may actually decrease your risk of right, having a C-section. Right, not, right. not even just that it's, it doesn't change it because if as a patient, if you have, let's say, again, hypertension or especially any, you know, any medical issue, which includes diabetes, um, lupus, anything like that, that may predispose you to getting higher blood pressure at the end of the pregnancy, being able to take our time to safely induce your labor means that we'll be able to increase the chance of you having a, a vaginal delivery as opposed to when, when a patient, you know, comes in and has, you know, already has, let's say, severe preeclampsia or the amniotic fluid around the baby is very low. Some of those situations, it doesn't mean that you have to have a C-section. We can still try to induce the labor, but the chance of a C-section gets higher because, you know, if the if a patient's blood pressure is uncontrollable, we may not have the time right. to 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 have them continue to have a vaginal delivery. If if a, let's say we have a patient whose baby has been very small through the pregnancy, like exceptionally small, what we right. would call growth restricted, not just you know small. Right. And there's some signs that the the blood flow to the babies is compromised or there's lower amniotic fluid. The longer we wait, the more likely, first of all, putting aside any outcome with the baby, that when we finally go ahead and induce labor, the baby may not tolerate the labor. Right. So I actually think that, you know, again, it's all about finding a balance. We try to find a point where you know, we can have a successful vaginal delivery. You know, we're not going to be delivering the baby too prematurely. It's really a balance, but sometimes trying to push things off too much to like the, you know, further than we feel comfortable with the patient's medical state actually could just end up, you know, they may not go into labor on their own anyway. And then when we finally induce their labor, you know, may end up having a, a you know, more of a risk of a C-section. So yeah. I say that to just reassure patients that when we talk about induction, you know, we're really in it for the long haul. We want you to have a vaginal delivery. Like that's, right. that's ultimately our goal. Yeah, it's a really good point that sometimes waiting, either the mother's health could deteriorate or not the baby's health so much, but the placenta right. can start to deteriorate, which makes inducing labor harder because the baby you know, won't tolerate as well and that frequently it's actually better to induce. And so that these are the things that go into our thought process. And I think that's a really good point. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on to talk about induction. This is you know, a very common uh, conversation we have with women. And I think that this podcast will be really helpful, both for our patients as well as women, in, you know, who are not our patients who are potentially going to undergo induction and maybe women who, you know, underwent one years ago and are just curious about it and how it went. Uh, so thank you so much. No problem. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.